When I lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I was in Amish country. It was a religiously conservative area. And our church building had been vandalized some years ago when we had a social justice fair and gave over 38 organizations an opportunity to display brochures and talk to members in the public, two professional picketers in black t-shirts stood out in front shouting that we were all going to hell. My own thought was that if they were going someplace else, I was happy to go to hell. My response to them was to take them plates of food, coffee, to take pictures of them, and to send the youth group out to talk about issues with them. Those were the best pictures. Like a lot of other places where there's a heavy majority of fundamentalist Christianity, some people in the community pay other people to disrupt clinics, peace rallies, and organizations that take progressive approaches to social justice issues. The congregation often felt nervous and leery of taking public stands for fear of possible violence or vandalism. They also had built a fairly strong community who understood that they were in the minority, and the feelings of distrust from outside actually helped them to bond together as one community who felt beleaguered and besieged by an intolerant general population. It was a refuge church, larger but similar in context and connections to all souls. They also were a tall tree of liberal religion in a forest of fundamentalism. A good friend of mine and colleague from seminary, Fred Hammond, who is the minister in Jackson, Mississippi, is coming down this week. And he's going to stay with me, and we're going down to Gina together. And I said, well, how is it over there? And he said, well, our church is a fortress. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, during the civil rights days, you know, we had somebody killed, and uh, people were injured, and they vandalized our church. And so they built the new church without any windows. And he said, it's the most depressing place I've ever been in all my life. And I said, gosh, what kind of support do you have from your ministerial colleagues? And he said, Lynn, I am the only Unitarian Universalist minister in Mississippi. And, as far as I know, the only openly gay minister in Mississippi. And I said, brother, you better keep your head down. And don't start a gay bar. Anyway, uh, he's lonesome over there, folks. He's going to have fun with us this week. We get worried about being perceived as crazies or as a cult, as devil worshipers or as non-believers or as secular humanists. We have our own community here, yet we yearn to be accepted, to have our theologies and our ways of being and believing and doing accepted in the larger community, even when most of that larger community is racist and bigoted and believes the world was created in seven days 6,000 years ago, something that very few educated, informed Christians still adhere to. Some of my family are fundamentalist Christians who believe in an actual hell, 
and an actual heaven where they will meet Jesus. And although we don't agree theologically, we work very hard to love each other and to get along and to accept one another for who we are rather than what we think or believe. I want to be accepted as a human being and part of our family, even if I'm 175 degrees and maybe 180 degrees apart from most of them theologically. I love my family and I want them to love me. They want me to accept them for who they are as well. It's a challenge for all of us. But it is, I mean, you know, my relatives go to South America and China on mission trips and stuff like that. You know, I mean, they are serious Christians and they are working hard to make the world a better place in the way they best understand it. And I commend them for it. So we are all challenged. But it is possible to build such relationships and focus on what we have in common rather than how our theologies and beliefs differ. So I would propose to you that it is a healthy thing to associate with different people from time to time and to collaborate on projects and social justice works with other religious groups. For example, the UUA a number of years ago started collaborating with the Catholic Church officially in, a, uh, in some social justice work. They obviously can't collaborate on family planning, but those two religious groups found something they could collaborate on for social justice, and so they are working together on that. Now, I've been attending interfaith meetings of African-American, Baptist, Episcopal, Catholic, Hispanic, Methodist, Muslim, Jewish, Church of Christ, and assorted non-denominational Christian churches over the past two years. And I've made some really good friends there. And tonight we are co-sponsoring this multi-faith, multi-racial prayer meeting to show our support for the for Justice and Gina. We've been working together on several projects in Shreveport, and I enjoy every minute of it. We have developed trust over discussions of common concerns, blighted neighborhoods, extended nighttime bus service hours, employment training and opportunities, education and anti-racism, such as our support for the six black youths in Gina. I'm head of the Anti-Racism and Diversity Task Force, and so I raised the question with the group of what we might do to support Justice and Gina. They looked at me, like, but none of the black ministers brought it up. So I brought it up, you know. And what we are doing together is building trust and cooperation across religious communities. Several of the churches are also sending people to Gina. And as far as I've been able to determine... As I told you a while ago, it's about the first meeting like this that's been held here in a long, long time. So, again, I hope to see you here this evening. Now, this is what I mean by beyond community. Reaching outside our own comfortable womb, our own comfortable community, where we are all at ease with one another, to build relationships with those who interpret the world very differently for the sake of some good cause. Not only does it add leverage to our efforts, we earn the respect of some fundamentalist Christians and get some practice working together 
and that breaks down barriers. We engage a wider community. We need to be able to communicate past our differences in our own community as preparation for communicating in the wider community. Otherwise, we'll just blow it. Most Unitarian Universalist congregations are small, even smaller than ours. Many people don't even know we exist, or who we are, or what we do and stand for, or what our values are. My colleague Daniel Schatz over in Pennsylvania tells a story about taking up residence in a small New Hampshire town of 800 people. It had two stores, the village store and the other store. The other store was the sort of place you could order scrambled eggs and buy a can of paint at the same time. He needed a mechanic. Couldn't find one. Kept asking around, but no luck. And one day, sitting with friends, drinking coffee in the other store, somebody asked him if he'd heard of Hidden Automotive. He said, that's a place to go around here. Well, Dan went home and looked in the phone book, but there was nothing even close. So the next day, he asked at the other store, and they said, oh, they're unlisted. Finally, a console told him how to get there. Daniel made his way back into the woods on a narrow road, missed a couple of turns, and finally came upon a tiny, tiny garage. The mechanic walked out and introduced himself. I'm Sam Hidden, he said. <laughs> Dan liked Sam Hidden and says he's the best mechanic he ever had to work on his cars, and that when he left there, he had to go into group grief therapy. Now, Hidden Automotive didn't advertise, just took the business that came word of mouth. Sam wasn't interested in growing his business. And that's the way we Unitarian Universalists sometimes relate to the world. Our church is practically hidden. We don't advertise or evangelize or proselytize. It's almost as if all souls and many other Unitarian Universalist churches want to stay small like Sam Hidden. We hide our light under a bushel. Our values and theologies have always pressed the envelope. We have always pushed forward, questioning traditional dogmas and beliefs. Many declared or burned as ex or exiled as heretics. Much of the time, we've been surrounded by conservative Christians or atheists and secular humanists. Most of us a small number are religious humanists, some secular humanists, but more and more Unitarians have modified their secular humanism in areas of theology so that they are in the process of transforming those ideas into a contemporary form and a more reverent and spiritual form of religious humanism. It often requires a critical mass to grow. And congregations that are small like ours reach a size that enables it or makes it easy or simple to grow. We are not that big yet. We claim that we don't have the resources. And so we kind of get in this, what do you call those squirrel cages, you know, where they just go round and round and round, yeah. 
Consciously or unconsciously, we think of ourselves as refuge churches, that single tall tree of religious liberalism. We like each other and we enjoy being together. We're kind of like a jovial family that the rest of the world thinks is weird because they don't know anything about us. People are suspicious about what they don't understand. So I think it's important for us to take some time to articulate our values individually and as a congregation. I know it sounds corny, but I think we all ought to be able to have an elevator speech You know, that is about a three-minute speech about what we think is truly important in life that expresses our values. We don't have to go into big theological discussions, but we do need to be able to explain that we're more concerned with deeds than creeds and to let people know some of the values that are expressed in our principles and purposes. That isn't being dogmatic. It's simply thinking about what concerns us what drives us, what our own purpose in life is, and what we would work hard for or perhaps even die for. We don't have to go around town flouting our theologies, although I do wear all my T-shirts around. But we can certainly demonstrate our values by the way we conduct ourselves in groups, in business, and socially. If somebody makes a racist joke, it's easy enough to learn to say very calmly, I'm not comfortable with that kind of talk. Or, yeah, I don't think that's funny. No scene, just a calm statement. Um, I have to tell you that the other day I was at a city council meeting because the interfaith group got an award for their work in getting the bus service extended. And so... I had met a couple of the councilmen. I didn't know who they were, but um, one of them wore a great big white hat. He was really something. But I, uh, before the thing started, they came up to me and said, uh, ma'am, would you be kind enough to give the invocation? And I thought, well, here's an opportunity. And I said, well, thank you very much. You know, I am a strong believer in the separation of church and state. But for you, I'll do it. And I did it. They probably, you know, they didn't bomb my house. I know that. Anyway, if we take time to become more comfortable with others and with who we are ourselves as a faith community, we will become more attractive to people who are looking for a church home. I don't think it serves us well to hide our light under a bushel and to stay small just because it's comfortable and we feel like a family and we all know each other by first names and all understand each other. We need to be so spiritually secure, we need to be so spiritually secure, so well-versed in our faith that we can talk about it with strangers and that they will be interested enough to visit and perhaps join us. Remaining isolated, thank you. Remaining isolated and small does not serve our own community well, nor our faith. In other words, we all need to become ambassadors of this faith, to give others an opportunity to learn what we have learned. That this incredible faith tradition with its honesty 
and transparency, its respect for human and animal and earthly dignity provides us with a framework for living and being and doing and worshiping and learning that expands our lives. We don't want to be stuck in a dogmatic creed. That's why I invite practically everybody I meet to come and visit. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I want them to know that they are welcome and free to think for themselves. And when I go into the Honda place about every two months, they say, oh, here comes that wild-ass liberal minister. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. They are really good guys down there. In short, living religiously amidst fundamentalism and secularism may accentuate our differences. But it is possible to find common ground on some issues and to work together on those commonly identified issues. And that is more powerful than if we worked alone. Living religiously means sharing our faith, even if you know that sometimes people may not be interested. Friday, I went to my Rotary Club, and they are very, very conservative. They're almost all as old as I am. And I made an announcement about the anti-racism multi-faith service this Sunday night. Now, they're not coming but they know where we stand and that we are doing something to eradicate racism in the court system. They know who we are and what we are about. Once in a while they even let me pray. (laughs) Let this religion guide your feet. Let this religion voice your values. Don't hide it under a bushel. It's too special and too wonderful. By living and sharing our faith, we can develop our spiritual side, our intellectual side, and our emotional aspects. Living our faith, sharing our faith, will not destroy the community that we have. Living our faith will enrich our community. Intentionally living religiously, living our faith purposefully will enable us to find common ground and to make a significant difference in areas where we have common concerns. Amen.